Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Angry Environmentalist. In today's episode, we have a very special guest speaker here to discuss his work as it pertains to polar bears. His research for the past 39 years has focused on polar bears, but he has an overall interest in carnivores, but his current research focuses on how climate change is impacting specific polar bear communities. He has been a professor of biological sciences at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Canada. Wow. That was a lot to say, <laughs> since 2002. In his career, he has published over 200 peer-reviewed papers, which is quite impressive, and he's currently a member of the IUCN slash SSC polar bear specialist group. He has also written a book on polar bears called Polar Bears, A Complete Guide to Their Biology and Behavior, and I recommend that people definitely check that out. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest speaker, Andrew DeRocher. Thank you so much for coming on, and I'm so excited that I get to speak with you today. Oh, it's uh, my pleasure to be with you today. So let's get right into it. So how did you get started into this career, and what really interested you about studying polar bears? Well, you know, I, I was a kid. I grew up on the west coast of Canada, and... I didn't really ever think about polar bears. There were some in the local zoo, but it wasn't sort of something that I sort of set my mind to. I was interested in wildlife as a kid, even though I grew up in a big city. Um, there was still a lot of wildlife back in the 1960s in, in the west coast of Canada in Vancouver, where I grew up. So I, I grew up, you know, catching snakes and, you know, looking in nests and things like that. Uh, and it kind of progressed from there. I like being outside. At one point, I thought I was going to be a park ranger because I was working for parks and I was going to go that way. And uh, my parents sent me registration materials to go to college. I went to college, university. And once I got in there, I, I kind of learned that there was something like a career path as a wildlife biologist. And um, I finished up my degree. I actually, I started actually uh I, my degree is in forestry, so growing trees and wildlife in, in forests is what I was interested in. But I got a job after that working on grizzly bears on the west coast of Canada, and they were going into hibernate. And one of the guys I worked with says, well, what are you going to do now? We have to lay you off. Um, and, and I said, I don't know. I probably look for a master's degree. And he says, I know this guy, Ian Sterling. He's in Edmonton. You know, he studies polar bears. Does that sound interesting? And, you know, I just spent months studying grizzly bears. Polar bears sounded kind of cool. The next thing I knew, I was moving to Edmonton, Alberta, the University of Alberta, did a master's, a PhD. And turns out I was pretty good at catching bears. And that's kind of what took me this direction. Um, fascinating species. But, you know, in reality, I could have studied dragonflies or damselflies. They, they Both those groups fascinate me. Uh, it could have been birds or fish. Um, probably anything, but uh, polar bears almost sort of chose me, it seems. So it's kind of an odd deal that way. Yeah, that's so interesting. Cause I think it's so funny that so many of us like going into this field, like I'm in ma my master's degree right now. And I was like, oh, I'll be a park ranger too. Like so many people I hear from always wanting to be a park ranger and then your career takes you somewhere different. You know, when you talk to biologists um, at almost any stage of their career, it's really serendipitous. It's just like, how did you get to study, you know, you know, snapping turtles? And it's like, well, you know, one day I was going out and I met this person and they were doing something and that's what they were studying. And I thought, well, that's cool. Or, you know, it's just chance and circumstance, um, you know, and I look backwards on, you know, I've been doing this for almost 40 years. 
And, you know, my only advice to people is, you know, you take the best opportunity you're presented with at a given time and you do the best you can with it. And generally good things will happen. Yeah, I think that's amazing advice. And I've been hearing that often because I was always like, oh, I don't know what I want to do. And I'm so anxious about like what I don't want to get stuck in a specific field within the environmental field. So I'm glad you said that. <laughs> I'm glad to hear your story is very different and paid different than everyone else's as well. But on to the next question. So I know a lot of my listeners are going to have this question because I did myself a few years ago. Um, So do polar bears live in both Antarctica and the Arctic or is it just one? Well, they only live in the Arctic and, you know, technically the sub-Arctic areas. Um, The key determinant for where polar bears live is the distribution of sea ice. Now, of course, if you go into the Antarctic, there's lots of sea ice, but uh, bears evolved in the Northern Hemisphere and there was never a connectivity for polar bears to get to the Antarctic. So the only way they could get there would be generally by following over sea ice. Um, And there's never been a period of time where there's been sea ice in, in the evolutionary history of bears that connected the North Pole to the South. So they, they just couldn't get there. We do have, I mean, the furthest south we have for bears is the spectacled or Andean bear. Uh, and that's found in South America. Uh, and of course, they went over the, the land bridge over Panama. But for polar bears, there's just way too much habitat missing for them to get to the Antarctic. Now, they would love it down there. Um, there is no sort of sea surface predator. Um, so if you go, and I've worked in the Antarctic a little bit, but if you, you can walk right up to seals in the Antarctic and they just kind of look at you and don't do anything. Uh, you can never do that in the Arctic. Seals uh, are gone at the moment they see predators or if for that matter, when they see uh, people as well, because of course there's a long history of human harvest on Northern seals. So it's like, they're not scared because they don't have that predator of the bear down there in Antarctica. Exactly. And, you know, once you remove the predation risk, animals stop using energy to avoid predators. You just don't have to. Uh, I mean, the classic is, yeah, you go to the Antarctic and, you know, you can be standing on the ice. And when I was there, like all of a sudden there's like an emperor penguin standing right next to you. And I mean, birds just don't do that up here because, you know, People would catch them and eat them, maybe. Um, and, and the same thing is true in the Galapagos. I mean, there's no predators there, really. There are some, but, you know, they don't view us as predators. And so the wildlife comes right up to you and they just kind of, you're just part of the scenery. So it's a very different scenario. Um, the, the effects of predators are so profound on ecosystems. And, you know, one of the more recent examples, of course, is the reintroduction of wolves to the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And we see the pivotal role in the whole sort of trophic cascade that's happened there once you bring the predators back and and so that they really have a a significant role in ecosystems. It's interesting that you bring up wolves because wolves have been my favorite predator for like my whole life. I interned at a wolf center. So I love that you brought that connection in because it's so true that wolves and polar bears and all these predators are so important and so crucial to ecosystems and you can really see their impact on where they are. But if I saw an emperor penguin next to me, I would, uh, you're so lucky. <laughs> so it, 
It, it was it was a pretty neat experience. It was a winter expedition down into the Weddell Sea. And the only thing is, it did cure me of ever wanting to go back. Uh, we went through a full gale storm uh, where the waves were over five stories tall. Um, and it puts a new definition on seasickness. I'm not prone to seasickness, nor air sickness, which is a good thing because we spend a lot of time in helicopters, but um, it is an amazing ecosystem to visit for sure. Yeah, I've heard that that body of water is the roughest to go on. Is that true? Yeah, it was pretty, uh, it was pretty daunting. We went around uh, Tierra del Fuego, got past the Cape, and then we have to make a run to the edge of the sea ice. Uh, and it's not a big vessel we're in. And, and the big thing is you've also got icebergs coming off of Antarctica. So you sort of get to the top of the, the uh, waves and all the people on the bridge are up there with binoculars looking for icebergs because, of course, as soon as you shoot down the other side um, of the wave, um, you just get flooded. Then you've got to come back up and you're, you got to dodge the big pieces of ice. Um, yeah, it was an interesting experience. It, it was... Uh, I mean, I've worked on ships in the Arctic uh, since that, and I, I, I must confess, I'm not a big fan of working from, you know, icebreakers. They, they're cool because they get us into polar bear habitat, um, but you're kind of confined. The ships don't, you know, are pretty restricted on where they can go. But um, yeah, it's, I like, I like helicopters are fine. I like land bases better than ship based. Yeah, I don't think I would have been able to do the five story waves that definitely would have gotten me nervous. But our next question is, how has the changing climate started to impact polar bears? Well, it, it's interesting. You know, I, I always refer to polar bears as sort of an accidental icon of climate change. And one of the reasons for that is because the early studies that were done were actually put in place sort of in the 1970s because we were concerned about overharvest of polar bears. And so we had commercial harvest and unregulated harvest of them around most of the Arctic. And we were really concerned in sort of the late 50s and 60s that they were going to be hunted to extinction. And so we put in place an international agreement. And part of that agreement was that we would do research and manage polar bears with the best available scientific data. And that set the foundation. So we started estimating population size and reproductive rates and survival um, so we could monitor harvest. And of course, after many years, we got good at that. We had good data. And then uh, sort of in the early 1990s, it sort of tweaked on us that the climate is changing. The, the Arctic is predicted to warm. And a colleague of mine, uh, Ian Sterling, and I wrote a paper in 1993 that looked at the sort of the potentials of warming on polar bears and of course shortly thereafter we started to put the data together we said okay we now have data from remotely sensed sea ice distributions we can start to estimate parameters that might relate to climate change so we put it together and then very quickly the 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 patterns emerged that we were starting to see effects that we thought were related to climate change. And so it's pretty simple um, that the, the chain of events is the same across all polar bear populations that have been studied. And there's 19 populations across the Arctic. Not all is showing the effects of climate change, but it typically starts with a change in sea ice. Then we see a change in the body condition of the bears. So just how fat they are, how much do they weigh? And then we typically see the effects on reproduction and survival.
And again, um, it's not like everybody stops reproducing, but some individuals stop reproducing. Um, and it's not like all individuals die, but the weakest die. So we tend to see lower survival of young bears, uh, and we tend to see higher mortality in the older bears. So again, um, and eventually, once you take all those effects together, lower survival, lower reproduction, give it enough time, you see a reduction in abundance in a population. So, and again, you know, with 19 populations, they're not all in trouble yet, partly because not all of them are showing changes in sea ice. So it, it's a dynamic uh, process, but that's sort of the storyline that's playing out in different areas at different rates over time. That's good that at least not all of them right now are being impacted, but you mentioned hunting. So is hunting still allowed on polar bears or is that something that has stopped? It, it is. It's interesting. You know, when we look at uh, harvest of polar bears, the, this 1973 agreement that I referred to, um, it sort of put out some guidelines on hunting. And one of the things that happened is Norway, uh, which has polar bears up in Svalbard. I worked up there for seven years for the Norwegian government. Um, and that population, they shut down harvest in 1973 because in the, in the terms of that agreement, they said, we don't have any local people with a traditional harvest. So they just stopped um, and they've never hunted them. And they were killing a lot of bears in that area up to that point. Um, now, in contrast, Russia, interestingly enough, or what was the USSR at the time, had actually had earlier concerns about their harvest of polar bears, which was um, potentially driving the species to extinction there. They shut down all harvest in 1956. So they were well ahead of the game um, and they've never really reopened it in Russia. So Russia and Norway are largely closed. There is a little bit of subsistence hunting in Eastern Russia in the Chukotka area. Uh, that's in a population that's shared with the USA. Um, but Alaska, Canada, and Greenland still have an ongoing hunt. It's a subsistence harvest. It's uh, centered on local people. Um, so it's, it's basically local people taking bears for their own use. In Alaska, the, the hides have to be turned into handicrafts before they, ca they can be sold. In Canada, you can still sell the hides. So we have a, a trade in polar bear hides and that goes internationally and nationally. Greenland is kind of a mix. They, they allow harvest and sale of hides, but they stopped exporting a number of years ago. And, and so they're a little bit more dynamic and there are sort of ongoing concerns about harvest levels in some areas, but in other populations, it's quite clear that the levels of harvest are sustainable. So it's quite a mix. I mean, it's good that some areas are shutting it down and keeping it for local indigenous communities. Um, so is there a lot of trophy hunting, would you say, or is that over with? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because trophy hunting uh, or what we might call sport hunting, these are, you know, the trophy hunting, sport hunting is usually not local people. Like they're not out looking for a trophy. I mean, they're looking for, you know, they eat polar bears in many of these communities. Um, and so the hides are used either sometimes for clothing in some parts. Um, polar bear pants are really popular with hunters because they shed water. Uh, you see that a lot in Greenland. Um, but the hides are, they're not necessarily looking for a trophy. 
they'll take the biggest bear they see or the best hide. Um, but in the context of trophy sport hunting, that was typically done under our quota system in Canada only. Uh, and what happens is, so a community, let's say, has a quota to hunt 25 bears. And then the Hunters and Trappers Association can say, well, we're going to let four of those permits go to sport hunters. Um, and then they'll bring people from outside. And at one point, most of those hunters were actually coming from the USA. There were Germans, Russians, some Chinese, people from around the world, really, who wanted to shoot a bear. But when polar bears were declared uh, threatened in the US, that triggers some provisions under the um, ESA, so the Endangered Species Act, and also the MMPA, which is the Marine Mammal Protection Act. And once that happened, it became illegal for US citizens to come to Canada and hunt bears. So it actually sort of took away uh, some of the sport hunting. Um, and you know what was the effects of that? Those bears are still shot. They're just shot by local people. So it didn't really change that much in terms of the harvest. Um, it has economic impacts because those were expensive hunts. They were sort of in the 25 to $30,000 hunts. Um, and a lot of that money ended up in the communities. Uh, so I, I know a lot of Inuk guides that uh, made their most of their cash living from just guiding a couple of sport hunts a year. Um, so it's interesting. So, and you know, most of those hunts were actually really selective of the really big males. I, I met a lot of hunters who said, yeah, I could have shot a small bear, but I just don't want that. I, I want a big bear. So I'm gonna come back next year. Um, obviously, some of these people are quite wealthy, and that was very clear that, that, you know, they were there for the experience, they want a big bear, and a lot of those really big old bears, um, like in a lot of populations, are actually post-reproductive. We have very good data that bears, once they're beyond about 16, 17 years of age, they're not producing many cubs. Um, they're majestic animals, so, you know, and, and it depends on your personal ethos on sport hunting, uh, or even hunting in general or consumption of meat, you know, so, um, but Northern communities are, are still very subsistence oriented, very much live on country foods. Um, and so it's a, it's a very different world in, in the North, particularly in those areas of Canada where I work. I'm someone who personally, I don't like trophy hunting at all, um, but I'm really good with an understanding of local communities who have hunted these animals for years because they're not the ones who are driving these animals to extinction. And same as in Yellowstone with wolves and out west of wolves in the United States, indigenous communities didn't want to be hunting these wolves to extinction because they're a part of their traditions. And it was the trophy hunters who were coming in and just wanting that picture and to sell that wolf for their own economic gain. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a there's a pretty good history of exterminating large predators because of the conflicts that they create with uh, humans. And, uh, you know, in North America, it's pretty easy to, to sort of sit back and sort of, you know, say, oh, you know, we want to have lions and all these big animals in places like Africa or, or Southeast Asia. But if you actually look at the statistics, it's pretty dangerous living with a lot of large mammals around uh, developing parts of the world. I mean, there's, there's 
um, mortality events that happen that would just make our hair curl in North America. We wouldn't tolerate it. Uh, we're fortunate that cougars, grizzlies, black bears, polar bears just don't kill very many people here. But you know, if you go into Africa or Southeast Asia and look at the statistics on the number of people killed uh, by wildlife, it's really, really, uh, it's scary in some places. You know, hippos, elephants, uh, lions, uh, hyenas even, leopards. Um, in Southeast Asia, in India, sloth bears, you know, you'd think a sloth bear would be slow moving. They're incredibly dangerous uh, animals. And yet people live in close proximity, you know, so we, we can, you know, we can add tigers to the list. But, you know, in North America, very few people are killed by wildlife. Um, we do have fatalities from polar bears at times. Uh, we've had a few in Canada in recent years and in other parts of the Arctic as well. That's very interesting. Yeah, I, I don't even, like you said, here we don't really see that happening as much, like the wildlife conflicts, because I know right now where I'm in in New York, there was a bobcat sighted, and we all know how small bobcats are, and every, on the news, everyone's freaking out, and I'm trying to do a coexisting program with coyotes, but now I'm like, okay, I have to gear that towards bobcats as well, because people are freaking out about this little cat. <laughs> Yeah, bobcats are not a high on my list of fear factor. I mean, it's just, it's just not. Now, where I live here in Alberta, I mean, we have a lot of, you know, you get in towards the mountains, there's grizzly bears, lots of black bears, and we have a lot of cougars. Uh, my research group is involved in some cougar research. And um, yeah, cougars are one you don't really want in your backyard. But where I live in Edmonton here, uh, we actually have cougars right on the edge of town. And we've got a big river valley and they come through quite regularly. So it's, uh, it's interesting. Um, you know, and in North America, we're actually seeing these expansions of, of species that used to live here that, you know, disappeared. So it, it's quite interesting, like we've got wolves moving back out into the prairie, we've got grizzly bears trying to get back out into the prairie where they used to be. Um, Cougar are recolonizing areas that they haven't been in in a hundred years. Um, so it's it's also we're going to have to learn how to re coexist with with a lot of these species. And you know, you mentioned coyotes where I live. I mean, they're they're sort of a daily occurrence. We just open the door and you can hear them. They're just, I mean, we're quite close to a big wilderness. Well, not wilderness, sort of suburban wilderness, sort of river valley system, and they live there and they come by our house all the time. So keep your dog close. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, sounds like I need to move up there because <laughs> I'd rather see that than walk out of my door and see hundreds of people. Uh, so our next question is, in your review paper from 2012, it's mentioned that polar bear populations in the southern regions of their range will start declining due to climate change induced sea ice melt. But since 2012, have you seen this occurrence happen? We have, um, you know, and it's interesting, 2012 was sort of um, another review. We did another one in 2004 and the one from 1993. So it's almost like every so often we sort of look at what the state is. And I would say if we were to come, you know, and write another review paper on what the status is, a lot of what we saw back in 2012 is, is just being supported by more and more studies in different areas. And so again, as I mentioned, with 19 different polar bear populations, there really are 19 different scenarios playing out. And I think when we wrote that paper, um, 
we, we sort of looked at, yeah, the southern populations are being affected. So, for example, the ones in the Hudson Bay area, we have two populations, the western Hudson Bay and the southern Hudson Bay. And both of those populations were showing the effects of sea ice change, which is lower body condition, lower survival, lower abundance. And then we also looked at the population in the southern Beaufort Sea. So this is the population off of the north coast of Alaska, and it's shared with the western part of Canada. And um, it was clear that that population had declined quite dramatically. And so again, you know, that's quite far north, but for polar bears, it's still kind of south. So those are the three populations that we have good data on. All three of those have declined. Um, and so then it sort of leaves open, yeah, but there's 16 more that what's going on there. Well, some of them we know are stable. Um, so we have populations in Canada where we've got recent uh, estimates that show the bears are still doing fine. But those are typically in areas where we've not seen major shifts in sea ice. So we wouldn't predict that they would change. So one of the areas that I think is sort of the, the next one to watch, so to speak, would be the Barents Sea population. And this is the population north of Norway in the Svalbard area, uh, and it's bounded by a group of islands called Franz Josef Land to the east in Russia. So it's a shared Russia-Norwegian population. And, and just for context, so the Hudson Bay area where we've already seen effects, it's losing sea ice cover roughly six days per decade. And this has been going on for about 40 years now. So that gives you sort of an idea of sea ice loss rates. And that just means that the bears have to deal with a longer ice-free period during the summer every decade. Um, if you get up into the Barents Sea, we're over 30 days per decade in sea ice loss. So the loss of sea ice there is about five times faster than in areas like the Hudson Bay area. Even though the Hudson Bay area is quite far south, um, it's just the, the variation in temperature and the changes that are occurring vary across space and time. And it's interesting because that Barents Sea population, which is the one I worked in for a number of years, um, I, I couldn't even go back to my old study area. It's just gone. Uh, the island that we worked on, it was an island called Hopan Island. Uh, it was in the south. It was a major denning area for uh, polar bears. There were upwards of 30 females producing cubs there every year. So about 60 cubs born uh, per year there. Um, and that island has no denning now, hasn't for a number of years. The sea ice doesn't come uh, early enough in the fall for the bears to get there when they're pregnant anymore. So they've just given up on that area. It's no longer part of their range. Now it's not a catastrophe. The bears have shifted to denning further north, um, but it's just an indication of how much things have changed just sort of, you know, over time. It's, uh, it's, it's dramatic just how, how much it has changed. And, you know, when I first got involved in climate change, I really thought this was going to be an issue for future generations of biologists. I've been told that as well, like, oh, we were saving the environment for the future, especially my freshman year when I was like, oh, we're saving the environment for the future generations. And it's like two years later, it's like, no, we're saving it for us and we're saving it for the people living here right now. And it's the communities that are impacting climate change the least that are being impacted the most. So, and especially animals as well. 
Yeah, it's it comes down. It's sort of not my my job as a wildlife biologist. I really try to stick to sort of the science of you know what do we see about polar bears and climate change, and then my job as a scientist is to to document those. And of course, we publish that sort of information in peer reviewed journals. But I think there's also a, a, a larger role for scientists to communicate to the broader public. And I mean, in essence, they pay for a lot of our research anyways, and they want to know what's going on. And I think it, it comes down to sort of a broader question of what I consider intergenerational fairness um, is that, yeah, my generation, my parents, my grandparents, you know, have put a lot of the carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that is causing the damage. Um, we need to pay for it. Uh, I, and I'm willing to pay for that damage. I mean, I think we have to, because I mean, I do have children, they're older now, but you know, when you look forward in time, it just gets more and more challenging for the future generations. And it's not fair to shift those burdens forward in time. So I'm cautiously optimistic that we'll get our act together. We're making baby steps that direction, but we're, we're definitely not in some sort of major shift in, in how we use energy yet. Yeah, I'm hoping, I'm trying to be optimistic as well. I'm hoping that we do see a change in the way people, I think it's most of the time like what we do and how we're using our resources. And I also think it's important, like you mentioned, com science communication. And that's kind of why I got into this degree that I'm in. I'm doing environmental science and policy with a focus on science. But I'm learning that it's super important that you don't just do the science, but you learn how to tell the public about it so they can care and that there's awareness. And that's kind of what prompted me to make this podcast is I think I read all these scientific articles and I am like, oh, I'm learning how to read them. I understand them. And I'm still confused on some of them <laughs> because I'm learning. But I'm like, wow, people who don't read these, like I show them to my parents and they're like, what? <laughs> definitely science communication is definitely important. It, it really is. And, and I mean, it's again, it's like any, any profession. I mean, they, there are skill sets that you learn in your profession that are not easily accessible to, to the layperson. And, and we're, I think scientists haven't done a very good job um, about communicating uh, what we find and why we do what we do. And so, I, I mean, I've put a lot of effort into it over time. You know, I put, put out our research results on Twitter, for example, and that reaches a, a diverse audience. Not everybody agrees with what I, what we find in our science, but that's fine. Um, they can ignore science and people do to their own peril. Um, it always surprises me though, that, you know, you get people that deny that climate change is happening. Um, and, and yet it's, kind of basic physics and chemistry. And yet they'll jump on an airplane and buzz off on holiday around the world. Um, but that airplane, it's, it's physics and chemistry. Uh, you're burning fuel, you're getting propulsion lift and all those sorts of physical things. And yet they ignore the physics on other aspects or science. And so it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a cultural phenomena. And I think it actually starts much, much earlier that, you know, our early education in science really um, isn't as strong as it could be or should be. 100%. Yeah, I'm actually writing a children's book right now. I'm in the editing process and hopefully going to the illustrating very soon uh, because I do think it's extremely important to have kids at very young ages in elementary school and all this stuff learn about climate change and develop that love for the environment and for fixing it for their, their future. It's, it's a really good point because 
you show me a child that's not fascinated in the outdoors and animals, um, and it's going to be a very unusual child because naturally we're we're inclined to those tendencies to look and categorize and understand and observe. I mean, it's some of our most basic instincts uh, deals with the outdoors and and wildlife. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. So kind of going on to our next question, you mentioned before about how polar bears store their food and fasting and storing fat. So have you seen any adapt adaptations in the ways that polar bears are fasting and storing fat due to the changing climate and sea ice melt? Well, you know, there's probably nothing really new in the world of a polar bear. Um, when even with climate change, so what we've got, and, and it's typical of most species, is there's certainly what we call behavioral plasticity. Um, and so there's sort of different extremes. And so when there's lots of food, bears do certain things that you wouldn't normally see. And so a simple example, uh, and it's been observed on the harp seal patches off the east coast of Canada, a polar bear gets into these harp seal patches and there's seals everywhere and they just become killing machines. They just kill and kill and kill. It's like they can't stop themselves. You know, it's like, you know, they just keep killing these seals. They don't eat them. They just kill them. It's like they can't stop themselves. Um, and so that's kind of an aberrant behavior that, you know, it probably doesn't have a great adaptive significance. It's just what they do. Um, but at the other extreme, when you take away food from a bear, um, they do things that they've always done. And so they, you start to see them do behaviors that we've recorded. We just record them more often. And so it's things like birds uh, uh, becoming a more important source of energy. Um, so they'll get into breeding colonies for ducks and geese and eat eggs and, and ducklings, goslings. Um, and, you know, people are seeing those sorts of behaviors more. But um, if you go right back into the, you know, early explorers, they were seeing that same thing in the 1500s. They wrote it down. Um, oral tradition in Inuit is that, yeah, they've always done those things. We just see them more. And that happens because a diversity of reasons. There's more people in the North now. They have cameras and social media. So when they see these events, they get transmitted around that they occur. So a lot of what we're seeing for bears is, is what I call behavioral plasticity. Um, and then, Within that, there's also other elements like physiological plasticity. And, and polar bears are, and bears in general, are really well adapted for going long periods of time without food. And so, in general, you know, in you know, recent times, a bear could easily go 120, 30, 40 days without eating. They'll use up about two pounds of body fat, about a kilogram per day that they are not feeding. And that's not a problem because most bears come ashore quite fat with lots of body reserves and can go through that 140, 50 days, no problem. Uh, they're pretty skinny at the end of it, um, but that's fine. They know they're gonna get back out on the ice and eat more fat seals. Um, and so one of the things we're seeing now though is that in some populations we're creeping over the sort of norms of what they can physiologically deal with and what are the consequences and i think one of the really vulnerable links is mothers with cubs they start to run down on body reserves and they stop nursing their cubs 
Now, a polar bear cub normally stays with their mom for two and a half years, and they'll nurse through that whole time. But what we're seeing is cubs about 10, 11 months of age, um, they're not getting nursed by their mothers. They're now on their own body reserves. And this looks like a weak link in the population. So what we're seeing is lower recruitment of cubs to the one and a half year age class. And so that's the sort of effect we can see. And so again, uh, as I mentioned earlier, not all individuals in a population are equally vulnerable to the effects of climate change. And, and so, you know, it, it comes down to things, well, then why don't all the bears just eat more eggs or, you know, more terrestrial resources? There's just not enough there. Um, you know, and in, in wildlife, we talk about sort of um, niche competition. And we already have an Arctic bear that lives on land, and that's the barren ground grizzly bear. Um, and they're doing fine, actually, with warming. They're actually getting a longer growing season, more resources. And we're actually seeing barren ground grizzly bear populations doing really well and actually expanding their range. So it's, it's a really, um, again, in, in climate change, there's winners and losers. Uh, and it's clear that those species adapted to cold conditions are going to be one of the losers um, going forward. That's very interesting about the grizzly bears though and how they're doing good and their cousins are not so yeah we were up in the high arctic sort of um an area sort of at the western end of the northwest passage and we were out there and uh we had permission we had permits to catch grizzly bears if we saw them and we caught a huge big male grizzly bear out there uh, he was out on the sea ice kind of acting like a polar bear um, and that is the area where we have had polar bear grizzly bear hybrids um, and so that was kind of a, a strange thing but what's happened there is as the climate has warmed uh, grizzly bears have expanded into the canadian archipelago all those islands north of canada and they've expanded but it's typical in mammals that who disperses males males disperse so what you get is a whole bunch of lonely male grizzly bears in the high arctic and there's no female grizzly bears there yet and of course love is blind you know polar bear looks smells like boy she just looks like she's really blonde they don't care it's just another bear and of course evolutionarily they're very close in time um and so the younger viable so we've had um uh, the uh, first generation and second generation hybrid uh, polar bear grizzly bears. So it's a, you know, mind you, most of the ones we know about, the reason we know about those hybrids because they were actually shot by local hunters. Um, so there's probably not a lot of hybrids out there. And I don't think it's a significant issue for polar bear conservation going forward. Very interesting though. I've never personally heard of that. And I think, thank you for informing me about that and all the listeners, because that's super cool and super interesting. Um, so our next question, our next two questions are kind of my favorite. So do you have any cherished memories studying polar bears that you want to share with us? Wow. You know, it, it's interesting because, you know, over 40 years, there's lots of things you'd like to forget, um, you know, bad weather. And, you know, I once waited for fog uh, for three weeks in a camp, a small camp. And this was days before we had much. We had like a generator and a bit of food, not much food either, because we weren't planning on being there for that long. But every day we woke up 
and we'd call in on the radio, what's the weather? Oh, it should clear by noon. We'd be standing there three weeks, nothing happened. So you get a lot, you gotta be patient as a polar bear scientist um, because you, it, it's dangerous work. You have to wait for good conditions. I would say probably the thing I enjoy the most is working out on the sea ice. Um, it's one thing to, to be on land with polar bears, but to be far out on the ice and seeing polar bears making how they make a living it, they just are so much in their element i mean i still remember the first polar bear i caught uh, and i've caught a lot of polar bears over my career thousands um, our research now is much more focused on the individuals and i think uh, probably my my greatest sort of one of my greatest um, memories was we had permission to go into an area uh, it's the highest protection area in the Norwegian uh, archipelago of Svalbard, we could go to a place called Kong Karlsland. And it was a long ways from where we were staying and it took a lot of logistics to get there, but we had uh, some questions about the effects of pollution on polar bears. Because remember in Norway, they're not hunted, but they are extremely polluted. And so we were trying to understand the effects of pollution, but we got permission to go into this area uh, it has a long history of, of uh, being a very high density polar bear denning area. And nobody had been there for years in the springtime, uh, decades actually. And so we got permission to go in. And as we were coming into this island, uh, it's just this low flat island, but all of a sudden it was like flying into an, a polar bear apartment complex there were polar bear dens and mothers sticking their heads out of their dens and cubs absolutely everywhere. And it was one of those moments where, you know, you sort of get the feeling like everything's just right in the world. This is the way it should be. The polar bears are safe up here. Um, there's lots of them and lots of cubs. Um, and it was just, it was just amazing. You know, we came in, we, we sampled some animals and we were basically looking at pollution loads relative to reproduction. Um, and one of the big questions and still remains is we couldn't find old polar bears in this population. So we had concerns that the effects of pollution were, were actually causing mortality. But I think that was, and it was just amazing, but it was so challenging to catch bears in that environment because everywhere you went, there was another polar bear denning. So you really had to be careful about where you were. Um, and polar bear cubs are just beautiful. They're just one of the most magical little animals in this planet. Wow, that's, I'm so jealous. <laughs> that sounds like an amazing experience and I'm so glad that you got to share that with us. Our last question, which is my favorite out of all of them, what are ways in which people all over the world can help protect polar bears and their habitat, even if they don't see polar bears outside like you get to? It's, it's something that I think a lot of people want to know that they're doing the right thing. And I, and I think that every day we can make decisions about what we buy or how we travel, how much we travel. And so I think that it comes down to a, an element of personal responsibility. And in, in the big scale of things, I mean, you know, when I moved back from Norway, uh, I bought, I, I said, I don't want to take, I took the bus every day to work there. Uh, cars are a luxury. They have like 100% tax on, on car to buy one. Um, so they're incredibly expensive. Uh, fuel was incredibly expensive. Um, and so I said, I want to walk to work. And so we actually paid more for a house. 
where I was close to where I could work. Now that's a luxury that not everybody can afford, but if not walking, riding a bike, um, and I think there's public transportation is something that we really need to invest in and use and support. And so for a lot of the decisions we make is, is this a durable good? Can we repair the goods that we already have? And so I think we've really become a society that doesn't consider the energetic impacts of our day-to-day -day life. And, and making small decisions um, can be beneficial collectively. Um, individually, not so much, but collectively they are. But most important, I think, is understanding what climate change is, understanding what the effects of climate change are on wildlife and ecosystems. Um, and I'm very uh, uh, prone to saying that by the time polar bears are really in trouble, and we expect to have polar bears right up to the end of this century, that's all the science is telling us that. So it's not like imminent extinction for this species. But by the time they're really in trouble, this is going to be a humanitarian issue. It's going to be where is our water coming from? Where are we getting our food? The droughts have dried out our typical sources. And we're seeing these effects. And yet we're pushing them into the future, saying, well, we'll just deal with them somehow. Um, and I think that once we get into those sorts of situations with mass migration, we're not going to be worried about polar bears. We're, what are we going to do with several tens of millions of migrants that are environmentally um, not able to live where they lived historically? And so, again, the developed world has some responsibility here to start looking forward. Um, and so, being informed and then being perhaps political, examining those uh, individuals that you vote for that might uh, be more likely to provide a uh, solution going forward. And, and so there is a political activity here that, that people can be informed and vote for those candidates that will make a difference. Thank you for that advice. Yeah, I think all of those are extremely helpful ways that we can help, again, save the polar bears and save people. <laughs> Yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic. I mean, we have um, risen to many challenges uh, over time. And I think the recent example of science coming to assist us with COVID has been a pretty good example of, of what we can do when we put our collective minds to it. And, you know, it was pretty cool this week, you know, they were talking about fusion energy rather than fission. And so fusion might be the way forward. There's some clean energy. But of course, they said that source of energy probably won't come online till after 2050. So we've got a lot of things to figure out in the next 30 or so years before we really find fully viable alternative sources of energy. But we're getting there faster than I thought, but probably not fast enough. Yeah, I'm a strong believer in science, so I hope that science can help us get out of this, but also just being human can help us get out of this too and realize, like you said, looking at our everyday impacts. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. And is there anything else you wanted to add? No, it's been, it's been interesting, wide-ranging discussions today, and it's, it's been fun. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's always fun to talk about polar bears. They're cool animals. They really do seem like it and you seem like you have a, a lot of amazing experiences that I'm extremely jealous about and I'm sure a lot of listeners will be jealous as well. 
Don't yeah, think. the bears have been good to me, more or less. I've only been bitten once. <laughs> oh my, you've been bitten? <laughs> it was a tiny little cub, but it bit me on my finger and it would not let go. It sunk its canine into my finger. And uh, that was a long time ago. I, I don't get bitten anymore. Well, see, that's, there you go, people. That <laughs> Don't be scared of bears. Don't be scared of animals. Be cautious, but not scared. Yeah, good advice. <laughs>